The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Those are verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which are the verses we're considering here during this season of Advent 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, I very much appreciate it. We, as I said, we're continuing to look at this as we consider the, the traits, the, the attributes of divine mercy, different ways that it manifests itself in the world. And so yesterday we looked at uh, how th- there's grace prior to sin, in other words, the, the whole um, the construct of, of creation is based on mercy because God knew in advance that, that mankind would bring sin into the world and the degradation of his good creation in every single way. And so the, the, everything was based on mercy from the beginning going forward. And so now today what we consider is the second word in that because it begins with the Lord, the Lord. He repeats it. And so they see two kinds of mercy in the repetition of the word Lord. <laughs> and so that the um, way to think about that is, is that there is also mercy after sin. I mean, it's important to know that mercy is a principle and, and, and one of the foundational principles of creation, but it's not a general mercy. It's a specific kind of mercy as well. It's both and at the same time, because the fact that, that all people, including those who deny him, continue to live is a general kind of mercy. There's a specific kind of mercy that's available for those after sin who will repent and return to the Lord. And th- that special mercy is blessing and life. And so here what we see, that's what we have today, it is the kind of mercy that's available for those who avail themselves of it, those who go after and in search of that. Best example that I can give of, of that kind of mercy has to do with... Um, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when those who have gathered together there, who are Jews, who have been in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, they hear, they come, Peter preaches a message, and that message is Christ in him crucified, that he was the Messiah, that he was resurrected from the dead, and that they're guilty of his death. And so their response to that is they're struck to the heart, and and they respond by saying, what must we do to be saved? And Peter gives an answer that couldn't have been anything other than bizarre in their ears, and that is repent and be baptized. That's it. Well, that's a legitimate thing, but it seems impossible from a Jewish perspective to, to imagine that God could forgive the sin of murdering his Messiah as simply as repenting and being baptized. Yes, it's true, because it's all about God's grace and God's mercy. And so that is the answer. Even the sacrificial system was completely based on mercy. If God didn't need to have created any kind of a system at all uh, because he could have just said, no, if you sin, you're out of luck. But mercy and his love for those created in his, in his image are what impelled him to give them that system. 
but the system was completely based on their obedience to the law. Whenever you failed and sinned, then, then the law tells you what sacrifice you must make. And so you make that sacrifice, and, and the priest then declares, if you make the right sacrifice, that you are forgiven by God. And so that system is completely based on mercy because he need not have a system of forgiveness and reconciliation at all. The fact that there was any system whereby a person separated from God by sin could be reconciled to him is, is an evidence of God's mercy and his desire for relationship and his prioritization of relationship. And, and that's the way we need to think about relationships as well. What is the central thing here? Is it, is it that I am offended, or is it my desire to be in relationship with you? And we can certainly la- allow sin to separate us from others, but, but it's our loss ultimately, and it's a loss for the kingdom of God. Because other people need to see us in a certain kind of way. They need to see us as merciful people. They need to see us reflecting the image of God, which is, which is in large part mercy. And if we're not merciful people, if we don't forgive one another in the body of Christ, then what, what's that witness then to the rest of the world? And so many churches are, are built upon, frankly, the, the, the separation of people because of sin. I got mad over here, so I went over here. I got mad there, so I went here. That's not the way it's supposed to be. No, we're supposed to be reconciled to one another, and we're supposed to pursue that reconciliation because we're supposed to be like God, and we're supposed to prioritize relationship. If anybody knew or expressed, frankly, the the meaning of what does mercy look like after sin, well, it begins with the idea that God's a merciful God to start with. But then knowing that no matter how badly you mess up, you can come to him, that, that no sin... That, that we might commit other than what is referred to as the unpardonable sin, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, ascribing the work of God through the Holy Spirit to Satan. That, that's the unpardonable sin. But for all other sins, including, well, adultery and murder, as David found out, we can go to him as long as we confess those sins. And that is, in, on Ash Wednesday, we read uh, Psalm 51. And that psalm begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And so what is the what is the what's going on here? What's the setting for this? Well, it's it's David's sin with Bathsheba. Not only does he commit adultery with Bathsheba, then he ensures that her husband dies in battle by telling the commander of the army, "Put him up front. Let him be killed." Because David wanted to hide his own guilt. As long as Uriah lived, Uriah being the husband of Bathsheba, then then one man knew that he was not responsible for the birth of her child, which is Solomon. He knew that because he knew that he hadn't slept with his wife. So he's killed in battle to cover up evidence of David's crime. 
And so he commits adultery and then commits murder in order to cover up his adultery. And, and that's the setting for David's plea here. And he's calling upon the name of the Lord. He, he calls on him in truth, according to your abundant mercy, according to your steadfast love. David knew what it meant to be in covenant. What it meant to be in covenant with the living God was is that, that you come to him and you confess your sins and you repent of those sins, and then God will forgive you according to his steadfast love and his abundant mercy. And David was well aware of that. And so David could go with confidence before the throne of grace because that's exactly what John's getting at in 1 John when he says that perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with judgment. But Jesus' resurrection, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension mean for us that we he need not fear judgment, that so long as we go and confess our sins to the Father and repent of those sins, then, then we are indeed forgiven, restored, and reconciled. So it's, it's important for us always to remember this, and it's important for us to remember that in our prayers, and we do that in our liturgy. Moses did the same. Later in, in Numbers, which is, you know, a couple of books later, <coughs> He says this, and now, please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but it by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. So, so he, he left out some pieces there about showing steadfast love to thousands and all that kind of stuff. He says, he goes on, he, so he quotes God himself and said, Let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised. What is the power that he's looking for? Is he calling on God to do something dramatic in the world? No. What he says is, please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And so there's a special case pleading that he's making before the Lord, but it's completely based in the character of God. Jonah knew it. Jonah constantly knew it and took it for granted. It was a principle that was so close to his heart that he just completely took the forgiveness of God for granted in the belief that I can do anything I want, but I will be forgiven because that's what kind of God I have. And so in, in chapter 3, Jonah has gone to Nineveh finally, and he has preached his message, and, and the people there fasted and mourned and wept over their sin. They confessed their sin, and God forgave them. And, and here's Jonah's response to that. He knew this principle perfectly well, but he only wanted it applied to a, to a small number of people. He only wanted it applied to the Jews, not the people who tormented them, the Babylonians. He said it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What's it? It is God's forgiveness of the Babylonians. It, that forgiveness, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, Lord, please now take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I mean, that Jonah said, I look, I knew it. I know that's what kind of God you are. 
In fact, I presume upon it all the time. When I ran away, I presumed that you would do that. When I told the people to throw me into the sea, I knew that you would have mercy on me. And I proclaimed your mercy in the belly of the fish for me. I didn't proclaim it. I proclaimed your judgment when I came to Nineveh. But you forgave them. And I knew you would do it. And I didn't want you to do that. Did Jonah think he was like the only possible person God could have sent to the Babylonians? And, and I get it. I get why he would feel this way. They, they made life miserable for the Jews. I get it. But at the same time, what, what, what you're seeing is, is that God has mercy on all those who confess, repent, and return. And so Jonah doesn't like it that this applies to anybody but himself. And there certainly was an attitude in uh, Judaism at the time of Jesus that, that felt the same way. And, and so what happens is you, is you get them, uh, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, and, and therefore that excludes other people. But Jesus says, I have other sheep not of this flock that I must bring in as well. And so what you get is, is that, that as Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem for his date with destiny, you get a man in Mark's gospel, blind Bartimaeus, who cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and, and Jesus says, what do you want from me? And he said, I'd like to receive my sight back. And he gets it. But what's he asked for? He's asked for mercy. Who has he asked it from? From the son of David. And who is the son of David? Well, it's Jesus. And it, but it, it's a messianic title. It means, I believe that you're the Messiah. He has made uh, a statement of belief regarding Jesus when he says, have mercy on me, son of David. And then, though, what you get is also in Matthew, later in Matthew's gospel, you get Jesus went away from there, where, where there had been so much ministry success and so many people around, but a little heat beginning to come on, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, which are Phoenician cities. These are, these are people who would have worshipped the Baals. This is up near where Jezebel's from, actually. And so he, he withdraws with his disciples up to Tyre and Sidon, sort of to get away from the crush. And yet while he's there, a Canaanite woman, and there's nothing worse than a Canaanite woman, right? Because Canaanites are the people who were originally in the land that the Lord had to drive out because their sin was so great. She comes out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Even up here in this Phoenician area, you suddenly get a woman, a Canaanite woman. She's not a Jewish woman who happens to be in this territory. She's a Canaanite woman from that region. And she comes with exactly the same title that Bartimaeus used when Jesus passed through Jericho, son of David. She's recognizing him in that role as Messiah. And what she's asking for, she's asking for mercy. She knows something. She knows something. She knows exactly what to ask for. We need to be better about asking for mercy. We, we can ask for all kinds of things, but what we really need is mercy more than anything else. We need to be fully reconciled to God. We need to throw ourselves on him. It's, it, it, and, and Paul says in Romans, he, he makes this real simple because he first makes the argument that everybody has sinned. Jews and Gentiles alike, and everybody needs the same thing. They need mercy. And so he gets to Romans 11.32. After his argument, condemning everyone is complete and saying that only in Jesus 
Is there any reconciliation? And we constantly are in need of it because of the war that goes on ourselves between the flesh and the spirit. So he comes to the end of that argument and he says this, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So everybody gets in, he says, the same way because we got out the same way. <laughs> we got out through disobedience. We come back through mercy. And so after 11 chapters of, of heady theological argument, he comes down and, and that is his final point on that. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Where does that lead Paul? to praise. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. His attitude is different from Jonah's attitude. Paul actually is thrilled that God's poured out mercy on the Gentiles. And he's thrilled to call them brother in the same way that that used to be reserved only for the Jews in his life. Now he sees a brotherhood of man. He sees a brotherhood of those who all bear the image of God, but also walk with a limp because of sin and because of God's mercy that that he has mercifully restored all. And we all come in the same way. Nobody has priority. Nobody is better in God's eyes than other people in God's eyes. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to know the cross of Christ. We, we live in a blessed time to live on this side of the cross, as my father-in-law used to say. We, we live in a blessed time because we know. We know with certainty that our sins have been forgiven and put away as far as the east is from the west because they're tacked to the cross with Jesus, covered in his blood, and we are restored and reconciled to a relationship with the living God because of the mercy of God in the cross and the assurance of forgiveness in the resurrection of Jesus Christ.